0: Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Good, and you're listening to the American Exception Podcast. This is part three of our Destiny Betrayed series on the JFK assassination. This episode features the great Peter Dale Scott. At the end, we have a special postscript with guest co-host Ben Howard.
1: Hello, this is Abby Martin from the Empire Files and Media Roots Radio. The 1960s were a cataclysmic time in the U.S. and the world, In 1961, the first democratically elected prime minister of the newly independent Congo, Patrice Lumumba, was assassinated. In October of 1962, the world nearly ended during the Cuban Missile Crisis. President Kennedy was assassinated in 1963. Right-wing generals overthrew Brazil's democratically elected government and installed a brutal military dictatorship. Malcolm X was assassinated. In 1965. One month later, the US started a full fledged war in Vietnam by launching Operation Rolling Thunder. In the fall of 1965, Indonesian President Ahmed Sukarno was overthrown after a bizarre failed coup. In the aftermath, General Suharto seized power and presided over the massacre of 500,000 to 3 million Indonesians. A New York Times headline described the slaughter as, quote, a gleam of light in Asia. By 1968, it looked like progressive forces might actually prevail in U.S. politics. These hopes were dealt a blow on April 4th, when Martin Luther King was assassinated. Two months later, Robert Kennedy was assassinated, paving the way for a Nixon presidency. Today's guest lived through these tragic events. Peter Dale Scott is a former Canadian diplomat, a retired UC Berkeley English professor, a renowned poet, and a scholar who has published countless articles and more than a dozen books of poetry and prose. In the early 1970s, Professor Scott reflected on the horrors of the previous decade, as well as the hidden forces behind them. He coined the term parapolitics to describe political practices in which accountability is intentionally obscured. Professor Scott also wrote about subjects that mainstream historians and journalists ignored, like the role of oil companies and weapons contractors in the Vietnam War, or the CIA's role in the Golden Triangle heroin traffic. He also wrote a brilliant essay in the Pentagon Papers, which first made the case that JFK had ordered a withdrawal from Vietnam, an order which was reversed days after his assassination by the new president, Lyndon Johnson. Professor Scott would later broaden his research to write about what he calls deep politics, quote, all those political practices and arrangements, deliberate or not, which are usually repressed rather than acknowledged end quote. We are honored to have Peter Dale Scott with us for two parts of this series. His 1993 book, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK, is a classic in the literature. In 2015, he wrote another book on the JFK assassination, entitled Dallas 63, The First Deep State Revolt Against the White House. Here now is Peter Dale Scott in conversation with our host, Aaron Good.
0: Professor Peter Dale Scott, it's great to have you here today and be speaking with you again for Covert Action Bulletin. Your work on the Kennedy assassination, you're one of the most prolific and long-serving researchers looking into this issue. So going way back, how did you first Start to sense that something was amiss in Dallas.
2: Well, I think many people had a kind of gut reaction that when Ruby was killed, uh, this this it's like the I don't know Building Seven going down. It's just over the top. So I was suspicious, but I became what you might call professionally interested uh, when uh, the year was 1965 uh I started to write what was called a, a, white, a citizens white paper which was delivered to Senator Fulbright and it was a very mainstream political idea that that we should just share our knowledge with con with congressman people and then everything would be set right. That was my naive assumption. And in doing research for that, I established that in the month of November, uh, Ngo Dinh Diem, the head of Vietnam, and his brother No Dinh Nu, head of the security forces, uh, were causing great anxiety in Washington because they were uh, negotiating or, or talking to the North Vietnamese about possibly settling the differences between them peaceably, and that didn't suit Washington at all. And then adding to that, that I I didn't have the details then, but I became convinced that President Kennedy, or at least people around him, and I suspected the president, were also taking steps to do the same thing. And in the first draft of, well, my draft of the... um, of the white paper, I, I asked a question, is it just a coincidence that in the month of November, the leaders of Vietnam explored uh, neutralization and were assassinated? And the president of the United States was exploring the same possibility, and he was assassinated too? Question mark. Well, that question was so loaded, it didn't even Get, wasn't even accepted in the final version of our white paper. But that that set me going. And, of course, down the road, I learned about NASM Security Actions Memorandum 273 of November 26, four days after the assassination, which quietly annulled the decision, actual governmental decision in October in NASA. 263, to withdraw the bulk of troops by 1965 and make an initial withdrawal of 1,000 by the end of 1963. All that was annulled four days after the Kennedy assassination. So I've hung on to that little clue of something. It's still very important to me.
0: One of the things that you have written about in the Kennedy assassination is – That you focused on and maybe done more work than anyone on is Jack Ruby, not exactly personalized biography of the man, but more of who he was in terms of the political economic context of of what he represented. Um, and in in relation to Ruby, as I understand it, it was Ruby and organized crime and the omissions of the organized crime angle from the Warren Report that led you to come up with the idea of a negative template, a term used to describe these uh, pregnant absences within official accounts of, um, of, of events, that are of suspicious but important events. I hope that's a good definition there. So how, how does Ruby represent a negative template Uh, in terms of understanding the deficiencies of the Warren Commission's conclusion of, you know, the one lone nut, Lee Oswald, who gets killed by another lone nut, Jack Ruby?
2: Well, that's really two levels to that question. Uh, The negative template idea occurred to me when I was working in the National Archives and found that the FBI had compiled an index of all the proper names in all of their files that mentioned J- Jack Ruby, and uh, there were over a thousand names, and I thought, thought this was very useful. And uh, I think I may even maybe made a copy of it. But uh, then I started looking up certain names, and the more important a name was to me because it was a mob link the more certain it was not going to be there. And because they actually had somewhere there was a a total, a list of the total number of names uh, and the actual file, I realized it was missing a significant number, about 150 names. So that file was the first instance to me of a negative template. But if a name was not on the index, you could assume this was somebody important. And it was actually was a clue for me. Um, there were some people I had not considered important, but once I found they weren't in this index, I said, oh, no, they're so important. They got removed from the index. The index was once complete, but it got edited for the National Archives. Uh, but in a larger way, it became a metaphor and if you want to think about the Warren Report as a whole, in some ways it's very good. You know, they really went went through. They 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 sopped up some false information, but they sopped up all the information, and it it is a useful record. Except when it comes to Jack Ruby, and they ask actually want to say that I can quote it for you if you like. I have the Warren Report behind me, but in effect they say. He was quote not mob connected close quote, and then you go for the source of the quote, and it it's the head of the mob in Chicago, <laughs> so <laughs> which is you know not the most sophisticated way of uh, doing research, but it is perhaps the sophisticated way of doing lawyers' research, getting the result that you wanted, and it was the and there were particularly two names that. Uh, I think uh, there was a man called Jack Yarris, Dave Yarris and somebody else, and they had been involved in a quite important mob killing uh in Chicago years before, which peripherally involved uh Jack Ruby. Uh and what one of my discoveries was the, the Warren Commission got the phone records of Ruby, and they're in the hearings as exhibits. And um, Jack Jack Ruby made a phone call to a man who was connected to Jimmy Hoffa, who on the day before the assassination phoned Jack Yarris. And uh, that I think that was very relevant to the way that the House american Activities Committee reopened an investigation in 1977. Um, And they boasted that they had discovered all these connections, phone calls between Ruby and people connected to the mob, and their list was my list. I mean, they they maybe added one or two, but the, the most important ones I had already written about um, and uh, so that the, the, the negative template here was that really significant information about Jack Ruby had been omitted. Now, many people have said about me that I've showed that Ruby wasn't actually a mob figure, and I, I didn't ever say that, and I don't think he was. I think he was the connection between the organized crime and the Dallas police. And uh, to some of the most suspicious people on the Dallas police, I'll just name Jack Revel, but he's not the only one, who was in the uh, intelligence squad and his responsibility was narcotics. And he said that Jack, my, I used Jack Ruby as an informant. He wasn't the only policeman who said that. That's a particularly important a case with Revel because there's a, in the hearings again, there's a report from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics that somebody back in 1956 had uh, negotiated a, a big drug deal that went through Dallas, but they had to get the okay from Jack Ruby, which meant really they had to get the okay from the Dallas police. That's the sort of thing that never made it into the Warren Report or the newspaper accounts, or may I say the House on American Activities. Excuse me, that's a Freudian slip. The House Select Committee on Assassinations, their report avoided these things also. They made big about Ruby and crime, but I really mocked their treatment of it because They talked about organized crime, about all these Italians. Ruby wasn't phoning Italians. Ruby was phoning Jews. And that's a different side of the mob. And by the House committee, by putting so much emphasis on the Italians, was, I think, obscuring the significant relationship that Ruby was involved with organized criminals, a lot of whom had to do with with, uh, Hoffa. And there are Hoffa connections with the Martin Luther King Association assassination and with the uh, Robert Kennedy assassination. So I think that was the real area they should have been looked at. But you can sort of predict that government investigations or even official commission investigations aren't going to go there.
0: It seems like Ruby and his job description is such that. It belies the kind of cultivated myth of this Italian mafia that you reference as a kind of external force in the political economy that represents, like, corruption that is somehow, like, outside of the prevailing political economy. But really, Ruby's more intertwined. He represents a kind of nexus where they're intertwined, the local authorities, people in the business world and so on, that they have more interactions, not just interactions, but relationships, institutionalized ways of operating, and that Ruby offered a glimpse of this if it was properly understood, and that that, in a way, was completely covered up and and turned into a concerned nightclub owner or a mobster, which neither of them are accurate.
2: Right, and you can say the same about Oswald, I think. The House committee did some interesting work on Oswald's mother's social background in New Orleans. You know, Oswald was arrested for a a staged event where he uh, got into a fight with some anti-Castro Cubans. Uh, He got out of jail right away because his bail was paid. And his bail was paid not by his mother, but by a man whose name I think was Bruno Uh, who represents not so much the mob involvement with the economy in New Orleans as organized crime involvement with the politics in New Orleans, because Bruno was a a political figure of sorts, but a very shady one. And uh, I think the Democrats are almost more vulnerable here than the Republicans because they're more of a mass popular party the Republicans are more of a business party the bi- Republicans have their own corrupt connections too but sort of street level um, people like Bruno's you they tend to be associated with the Democrats and uh, I think that it's you talked about the mob in integration into the economy of the country it's very important. But it's also their integration into the political structure of the It used to be semi official. Tammany Hall was uh, the way that the Democrats controlled the city of New York, and it was connection with mobsters. And when, uh, after the war, uh, they wanted to, uh, they occupied, the Americans occupied Italy, the AMGOT, the American military government, and uh, they put in charge of it a man. Who was a veteran of Tammany Hall. And then they actually deported a whole bunch of mobsters from America, American mafiosi, they had Italian names, deported them to Italy and became a kind of uh, a squad of toughs or uh, of hooligans to uh, beat Italian politics into an anti fascist structure. Should we say hurrah for defeating fascism, or should we say boo for uh, uh, using corruption as a political tool abroad, which America does? That is absolutely central to American foreign policy, and it's for the sake of the oil companies. The oil companies want to develop something. They need to be able to buy off the government, and they do, and we help them. The government helps them. It seems like the Kennedys,
0: especially perhaps Robert Kennedy and his the way he tangled with the mob," that it was he was trying to articulate some of the things in the enemy within. I mean, you can look at that almost as a very early public administration version of trying to grapple with the deep political system that you outline in Deep Politics and JFK. So for example, he actually identifies the Dorfman takeover, right? Uh, yes. like the Teamsters uh, right. pension fund, you know, the mob takeover of the...
2: But, well, of the- there were two stages. They took over a local of the junk handlers' uh, union, which Jack Ruby was the secretary of at the time. By murder, They murdered the uh, head of it. Uh, and uh, that was Paul Dorfman who was involved. And his son... That then uh, this was the beginning of the use of union funds to finance uh, the the pension fund. The central state's pension fund it was only one of the union of the Timster's funds, but it was the most corrupt one because of these political events that involved the Dorfman's and, and peripherally Ruby. Um, uh, yes, the uh, the Dorfman's were and Jack Jack was onto the. I mean Bobby was onto that, and Bobby was very onto aware that this had to handle very delicately because of the political aspects of it. The um, the Democratic National Committeeman for that region was I i well, I'm not I can't. Don't remember his name. It's a name something like McDonald, but uh, he was there because of Teamster influence, and uh, so that that you when Bobby fi- finally brought cases against uh, Hoffa, he brought them in remote places. I think Tennessee was the the big one, the, the crucial case. But it was down in Tennessee because he didn't want to bring it to Michigan because uh, the judges had all been appointed by this uh, pro-Hoffa thing. And he didn't think he could get a favorable verdict in Michigan. Yeah.
0: So, so 1939, Ruby is arrested after that junk handlers union president, the local president. Um, Cook. Cook was murdered and Ruby was apparently the only other, the only witness
2: to it? Yeah, I think so. My memories were vague, but I believe so. I think it, it happened in the offices of the Union and Jack was there.
0: Right, which is an interesting place and time for him to be. And then in 1946, he's also um, these associates of his are involved in, or there, there's this murder of James Reagan, who is the, I guess the wire service king, right? And this is attributed to the Jones Syndicate, with of which Ruby is connected. Um, what's the significance of that murder and the take and the, and you know the murder of the wire service uh, king? Well,
2: there was a battle going on in the wire service. There was a new wire service that was threatening the old. And uh, Reagan was the head of one of them. And the war was settled by the murder of Reagan. One of the murderers, or suspected murderers, he was never convicted, was this Dave Yarris that I was telling you about, who was two phone calls away from Jack Ruby the day before the assassination. Uh, It had a lot to do with also the politics of the Democratic Party in Chicago, Ruby came out of what was the 24th Ward of Chicago, which in those days was almost entirely Jewish, is now almost entirely black. Um, and the the head of that ward uh, was a man called Jake Arvey, A-R-V-E-Y, and he was the kingpin in the interaction between the mob and the... Uh, and the Chicago local government. And the ho- there was a hotel where they always used to meet. And ironically, there was a Kennedy, conference, Kennedy assassination conference in 93. And totally by accident, we were all put up in the very same hotel, which I, I found was kind of interesting. Uh, and the 24th Ward was the one which could be counted on to deliver as many votes As were needed to win an election, and unfortunately, this was true even of the 1960 election that Kennedy won by a whisker, and was uh, won with the when the votes were settled in Illinois and in Texas. Both of those states happened to be exceptionally corrupt. I mean, landslide Lyndon. Became a senator by a majority of seventy-nine votes that weren't there the first time they counted the ballots, and uh, the twenty-fourth ward uh, figured in the uh, the, the uh, nineteen-sixty election, and you know when Nixon said, "I'm not, I'm not, nobody fights an election." How wrong a prediction that turned out to be. He didn't contest the election not because he thought he had lost. He thought he had won, and there are people still who think maybe he won, but he knew that his interests, and, like the Kennedy interests, were not just too uh, badly weakening the uh, political structure which had made both of them prominent. So it's unfortunate that... uh, my, my friend Jonathan Marshall has just done a book called The Dark Quadrant, which spells out in great detail just how much corruption there is in this country and how deeply it has affected the politics of this country since World War II. And if anyone is really seriously interested in politics, I recommend that book, The Dark Quadrant. That, that's, I'm just giving my like, footnotes to the big story that goes there. And by the way, why do I say all these negative things about America? I, I hope you will save in the program. This is a terrible system. But just like Churchill once said, you know, it's awful, but it's the best system there is. And we're better, you know, Russia doesn't have this problem exactly. China doesn't have this problem exactly, though they have versions of it, especially Russia. Uh, but uh, the, the Amer- of the big powers, America still has the best political system. I really want to say that because I think some people are, read my work and draw the wrong conclusion from it because I don't say this loudly enough in my books.
0: Yeah, you've said in the past that to be an American or to be at all realistic about things, to, to love America on one hand, is to sort of be schizophrenic unless you're just deluded yeah. and you can ignore the... The problems. Um,
2: we are made I'm, schizophrenic by loving America. You know, that's a line from my poetry.
0: I think i may be more ambivalent about it. I, there are many things that I like and appreciate about America. And I worked as a political canvasser slash, you know, fundraiser door to door talking to people. And generally, even I'm, as odd as it sounds, even though like people who are conservative, Republican people that you would be, that I sort of force myself to speak to because I'd just be going to and for talking to everybody. And I, I generally find that most people are, you know, decent and, and uh, you know, respectable people. These power structures are, you know, quite different. And the preponderance of power that the American elites have commanded has uh, kind of resulted in some spectacular corruption, even in a society that has a lot of decent people and, you know, good things to recommend it. So, it does make you schizophrenic. I guess that's just a longer way of saying
2: that. And there's a line from T.S. Eliot, humankind cannot bear very much reality. And then in a sense, that's true. And, uh, you know, but our own brains really take care of it. If there's, we, we, we need to believe in the world around us. And if we encounter something that really calls into question that world, our mind is likely to suppress that fact. As I learned that with uh, Al McCoy, who wrote about the CIA and heroin. And we went to interview someone who had promised me on my phone the night before he would interview me. And when we got there, he wouldn't do it because there was a hole this big in the door of his MG. And we, had, we were witnesses to a terrorist act. Somebody had put an implosive device on his MG, he said, the guy said to it, Look at the floorboards, they're wood, they're not even singed. It was a very controlled implosive device, so he wouldn't talk to us. We had witnessed a terrorist act, and what do we do? Both of us forgot, completely forgot about this quite spectacular event. And I recovered it by writing a long poem coming to Jakarta. But when I next time I saw Al, I said, what happened to that interview? He couldn't remember. And I had to prod his memory, and finally he remembered the whole of the door, but not at first. So this is, where, this is the way we live. And when I probe, uh, I want to probe just so far that we get with material that can be fed back into the system and change the system, because the system desperately needs to be changed, And if it's not changed moderately, we're not too far away, I think, from seeing maybe uh, Republican legislatures in the South voting to secede or something like that. We're we're getting to a very tenuous era era different from what's happened before in American politics. And the cure for that is to come up with nonviolent but significant changes which can forestall the violent ones, which will happen if we do not provide them, if we do not get there first.
0: Yeah, there's so many variables right now that especially are kind of externally, uh, you know, coming at us with the, what what seems to me to be the irreversible, I'm going to get back to the Kennedy assassination, but I just want to (laughs) add to what you're saying about this because it's the, the gravest, you know, possible stuff. The decline of American hegemony over the you know, international capitalist system seems to be kind of irreversible. And it's things that they have tried to do, like crushing every possible good example of, you know, state-directed or socialist, socialist-ish um, development, but, that these they've sort of failed with with China and that China's actually able to go out and do something that people haven't been, other countries haven't been able to do, which is just, hey, let's make a deal for your resources. We'll give you this, you give us that. We're not going to overthrow your government, et cetera, et cetera. And if more business is done outside of the auspices of the U.S. and its financial system and its system of payments and all of this and the dollar, then the enormous amount of, of, uh, sort of rent, I guess, that you could say that the U.S. accumulates by virtue of its position of power is going to slowly or quickly dissipate. And then these institutions that have become kind of over, you know, sort of hypertrophied, you know, overly uh, bloated by virtue of how much wealth they control just by virtue of U.S. power are are going to lose some of that power. And, And what is that going to mean for things domestically in the United States? And I don't know where that's, how that's going to fit into these cultural regional things that you're talking about.
2: I more or less say in the American deep state that, you know, in the 19th century, we had a Pax Britannica and America, outside of it, used it, profited from it, and eventually took it over. And now China is a little bit in the same relationship to the former Pax Americana. Well, it's still a Pax Americana, but a declining one. But, you know, Britain, survived. Britain lost its status. And uh, I was in Britain after the war, and there was a lot of belt tightening at every level. My, my aunt had lived alone in a big house in London before the war. She had four families of relatives living with her in that house after the war. That was partly the amount of destruction of housing in London, but it was partly a, a kind of... Uh, symptom of the real decline in British wealth and the the status of the pound, which went from being uh, worth $5 before the war, and it's stabilized between $1 and $2, or $1 and $3 ever since. And America is going to have to do a lot of belt tightening, too, no matter what happens. But I suspect that, like Britain, America will continue to be important in a world that is no longer dominated by a Pax Americana, if it can make the adjustment uh, peacefully. And uh, uh, well, that's that's enough on that. You know that yes, we we have to look forward to belt tightening. But we don't have to look forward to a world where we're going to have Chinese commissars in the state governments of our country. No, we will go on being an important, powerful country, as Britain still is.
0: I, I'm in an interesting position in that I had a teaching job as I wrote my dissertation also really until just last this summer it ended. But I got to teach U.S. history and East Asian history. And it made me go back and look at all these things like, you know, the, the the colonial period and the The gilded opium wars wasn't the opium wars and and the opium wars from both sides in a way thinking about us and china you know the boxer rebellion and the opium trade there and all that but also the chinese perspective in the long run and they have the the caricatures of them do absolutely do not do them justice they're a, a very complex rich civilization with things that are currents of their culture that have that communism at one point reacted against in some strange ways but they're still there there's a long tradition of suspicion towards merchants going all the way back to yes. uh, you know the the first emperor and his questionable parentage if you know that story and there's also something about administrators being kind of idealized by society and and, and can, under Confucianism it's like the the administrator is supposed to be this diligent, Civic-minded person, and it's kind of one of the ideals, and 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 the appreciation of education, and so on. Like there's many things that they have that seem like correctives to problems that we have in our culture, and uh, I I think that I, I think that American imperial mandarins or whatever the foreign policy blob members they are whistling in the in the in the graveyard here or whatever when it comes to like you know expecting China to implode or not to be able to. Uh, you know, sustain its development in the, in the way that it has. I just, I think that we have a lot to learn from other cultures that we just don't.
2: Well, you know, the book I've just finished uh, begins with uh, talking about a Chinese intellectual, Shuji Lin, who is, in a way, a critic of the Xi government, but uh, a very gentle one. He's not in trouble. He's respected. He's a very major thinker, and. Uh, I, he, he is saying that China, to be really great, has to uh, be true to the values of its civilization, and that which have been corrupted by Western influence, and in that they become interested in profit and getting rich and all the worst aspects of Western civilization, they should go back to Chinese values. But the way he describes the Chinese values, it's my starting off point to say that civilization. We mustn't. It's it's misleading to talk about American civilization or Chinese civilization. There is civilization, and it is evolved. I don't know if it evolved from many different places simultaneously, or from one place and moved out. Those are two different theories, but. Either way, the similarities are very striking, and the first third of my book is showing that the significant cultural developments in the West were mirrored by cultural developments in the East, and the problems that we face now is it's true for China, and it's true for, when I say America now, I mean the West, Canada, Britain, everybody there are things wrong with our the overvaluing of uh, profit, for example, which is the, a kind of reflexive reaction to Marx's overvaluing of labor. You know, for Marx, man was a laborer. Yeah, of course, we need to labor, and it's fundamental, but we're not just laborers, and Marxism... And, was defective that it didn't realize that. But neoliberalism is just as defective in the opposite direction because we have a system that's producing super billionaires. We think that's a good system. No, it's a terrible system. And we, like the Chinese, need to correct ourselves internally. And that is the way that we could have peace. I am not a gloomy pessimist about the future. History says that usually there are always the best option is never taken, but it's not the worst isn't taken either. Usually a defective solution is found, which leaves jobs still to be dealt with in the future, and we have a huge amount to deal with right now with climate. Climate's just the beginning of it, really.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, was, I always identify climate and the nuclear issue and inequality as these three problems that humanity has foisted on itself. But the bigger sense, and I think that this is a part of the reason why you would study the Kennedy assassination and why I have spent you know time writing about it and related matters, is that there were struggles between these sort of darker, top-down forces in society, which also because they're kind of a more they're, they're largely amoral and interested in their own aggrandizement that they on the small scale first organically work with the lower elements of society you know the, the underworld and that there are links and similarities between you know your your overworld of, of acquisitive capitalist people and in the underworld of, of organized crime and yeah. these, the Kennedy assassination offers a window into that when you study it more. So on a mundane level, perhaps, what was the significance of the, the wire service war that we were talking about and the wire service in terms of corrupting things on a local and then on a national level? How did this affect the system in, in, the, in America to have this the, the power of the wire service and the corruption that it engendered uh, take hold?
2: You're talking about the Reagan murder and...
0: And the, and the consequences of the aftermath and the and the consolidation of this gambling, you know, the wire service throughout America and what it did to these different
2: Well, localities. the wire service was a network. You know, they had phone connections going wherever there was a racetrack. The wire service, some people don't know, the wire service uh, got the results of a... Of a, of a horse race and wired it out ostensibly so people could pay off but in some cases people were still taking bets so you could make money by betting on the winner because you knew the winner before officially people knew uh, the existence of those kinds of second networks um, it, it's very relevant for nine eleven actually the um, I don't know if we're going to get there today, but the, uh, the but in the background of the Kennedy assassination is another covert network. We call it now continuity of government network or the they call it themselves in the Pentagon who are in charge of it. they call it the Doomsday Network. And uh, it was it actually fit they, it had been been put together all through the fifties. But they had it neatly in shape in 1963, just before the Kennedy assassination, and it played a role in the Kennedy assassination on two levels. Uh, first of all, what really happened in Daly Plaza? Um, the Warren Commission said, we have two sources of information, Dallas Police network number one, and Dallas Police network number two. They had two networks in the Dallas Police. There was a third network, which they don't mention, which was the White House Communications Agency network, which was part, in fact, of the Doomsday network. Uh, And it was the one being used by the Secret Service who were all over Daly Plaza and in the cars of the procession. And they never asked for that. Uh, It was to too close to the truth, I think. Here we get the negative template again. Uh, the Later, the WHCA actually boasted that they had played a significant role in understanding the Kennedy assassination. Well, not a word of anything they discovered or researched ever reached either the House Committee or the uh, Warren Report. And... Uh, so I called them. I, we had a review board in the 90s, and I said, you've got to get those WHCA records, and uh, they couldn't find them. They, uh, uh, and then on a perhaps a more operat- operational level, there was a man in uh, Dallas called Jack Crichton, and outwardly he was an oil man and a politician, and he was the Republican candidate. For or a Republican candidate for governor in 1964, he was also the head of a secret uh, army intelligence reserve unit, which I think was sort of a brain center for the assassination. And in addition to that, he was the head of the Dallas Dallas Civil Defense. Well, civil defense has a very bad memory in history because it was associated with telling school children to put their heads under the desk if there's a nuclear attack. You know, it sounds ridiculous. They were trying to make something of it. They took it very seriously at that time and gave it a lot of money, and they specifically made it part of the Doomsday Network. And what does Jack Clayton have to do with the assassination? Only this, but this is very important. Uh, Marina, Marina Oswald, Oswald's Russian wife, was a central figure. she was a central figure in the initial theory that the Russians maybe or the Cubans were behind the assassination. and what she was going to testify would have been very important. and she but to for her to speak to the anybody interviewing her, she needed an interpreter. And of all the people Jack, uh, Jack Crichton, Was asked to select an interpreter, and he selected an interpreter who we know systematically misinterpreted what she was saying. So he was, in a sense, part of that first conspiracy to blame it on the Russians. She was being asked about the gun that Oswald was supposed to have picked up out in Irvine, where she lived, and uh, they were trying to get her to describe it, and she kept saying, I can't describe it. All guns to me are the same. But that came out in translation was, it was a long black bum, but it didn't have a sight. So, I mean, it's significant mistranslation. You might say conspiratorial mistranslation. And it's part of a conspiratorial pattern to suggest, which only lasted for about 12 hours, but it, it, it did last for a bit. That Oswald had killed Kennedy with a gun he picked up in Russia. Nuts crazy, but it was enough of a pretext to call into commission the, the Warren Commission. You know, that was the Johnson, the exact motive given to Johnson. We've got these crazies down in Texas who are gonna blame it on Russia. We have to do something, appoint a Warren Commission. And And let's put Alan Dulles in in charge of it. Then we'll get a really good investigation. And they got one which, of course, completely obliterated such relevant details as the fact that the CIA had opened a file involving Lee R.V. Oswald six or seven weeks before the assassination, which didn't fit very well with the idea that Oswald was a disgruntled loner who nobody ever paid any attention to.
0: Yeah, the nuclear angle is... Big part of the cover up, especially with Johnson persuading Earl Warren and then later Richard Russell, essentially telling them that if you don't do this, it could be nuclear Armageddon. I'm not trying to pressure you, but it'll blow up the world if you don't do this. Right. So, so that's, I mean, I would, if I were in their positions, I guess if it's a choice between potentially covering up a murder. You no, know, letting letting some conspirators get away with murder or blowing up the world, you can see why things would have shaken out the way that they did, and, and you can see why Warren Earl Warren would have just been sitting there nodding, apparently during that interview with Jack Ruby in jail, where Ruby is saying all of these things, and uh, and Warren Warren's reaction is uh, almost borders on kind of polite. White boredom or something, as though he were just I not think interested most of in these
2: the, things? Most of the commission, most of the staff felt very uncomfortable about what they were doing. And the one person who seems to have really taken the dealt with his job with gusto was Alan Dulles. De facto, it was the, the Dulles commission, because Warren, as you say, was very unhappy about his being there. He, Quite rightly, he felt that the Chief Justice should not have been there. Um, Dallas was delighted to do what he did, and uh, he did some very important things. But the most important things he did was to facilitate in the cover up of the CIA's involvement. I say involvement, I'm not saying the CIA killed Kennedy. Uh, I, if anybody did, I think it was Army or maybe Army intelligence that killed Kennedy. But the CIA. Provided a rock hard reason to make sure that the cover up was efficient, and that was the fact that both they and the FBI had done things about Oswald in weeks just before the assassination, which looked very much like prepar- being preparatory to the assassination. And in a way, so did the Pentagon. The, the, the People started consulting the Oswald files. And the, the, the agency, by the way, that you have three military intelligence agencies, ONI and the Navy, and that connected with that is Marine G2. There's another um, black, uh, black hole or negative template. They should have got Marine G2 files because Oswald was a Marine. It would have been the first set of files to get. They never got them. The only they exist is because they badly edited the ONI file that they did get. And every now and then there's a reference to sending a copy to G2 or a reference to a confidential letter that's in another file. Nothing confidential was ever released, but it's proof, absolute clear documentary proof, that there were confidential files about Lee Harvey Oswald before the assassination which the Warren Commission and the House Committee never got to see. So, um, well, I, I don't want to go on and on about the Army, but the, the there there are you can I could give you a prima facie case that it was the it was they have to look to the Pentagon, uh, not to the CIA, the FBI. They were vital in the cover up, but somebody had to actually kill the guy and. It may have been the initial racist conspiracy that was reported to uh, New Orleans uh, police force before the assassination. They they had in their files a record that he would be the president would be killed from a, a tall window with a, with a rifle. And that they would immediately arrest somebody to stop the investigation. Both of those things were true. It was never investigated before or after. The FBI went out of its way to make this information look trivial. Um, so we have clear evidence that the government is involved in a way. And it's also down at the local level, a, a, a full understanding of all the dimensions of the Kennedy assassination gets you into the, uh, you know, things like Jack Rebel's connection to Jack Ruby, the fact that Ruby supplied strippers to parties of rich millionaires in Dallas. That we mustn't—that's his connection to the Dallas economy. All of these things tell us about America as well as about the Kennedy assassination. And they tell us things about America that people on high levels don't want us to know. And that has to change. If we want to get a peaceful change in this country, we have to know what's going on in this country. Otherwise, we can just wait for goons to blow us up, which I don't want to happen.
0: Some of these ankles of this deep political system this sort of suppressed institutionalized corruption that we have. The Kennedy's in, I I only, I mean, I've been aware of this for a while, but didn't really think of it in these terms, but there were two films that they tried to, that both the Kennedy brothers tried to have made that would have exposed these things in different ways. First you had RF, actually, I don't know the time that he was trying to do this, but RFK wanted to get the enemy within made into a movie and with all of his friends in Hollywood and his own family connection, and him being, you know, connected to the president, the most powerful man in the country, presumably, he couldn't get that film made because, as I understand it, the Teamsters uh, had made it known to every Hollywood studio that they would they would do everything to stop that film from. From being yeah, made. All, and,
2: also, the film—I—I I, I can't give the initials of it—but the, the the people who actually screen the films—that's a mob-corrected uh, f- uh, thing, which we're part of it. And the you know, in the Godfather story, where the, the horse's head ends up on the movie maker's bed, that I don't know if that really happened, but it's certainly a very good symbol for what what strangles Hollywood. Kennedy wanted Seven Days in May. Made and he gave the permission to use the actual uh, Oval Office in the making of the film because he really was concerned, and uh, the the that movie was Ballpark, you know, aware of real currents that were really plotting at that time to do something about Kennedy. Oh, I do have to tell a personal anecdote that by a weird accident. I ended up at a dinner party in July of 1963 at the home of the head of the Hoover Institution on the Stanford campus, which was at that time, and perhaps still was what you might say, the top right-wing think tank uh, in America. And I really didn't belong there, but because of, I knew Poles and Poles knew this man, uh, uh, I was there, and the whole topic of conversation with these various right-wingers is, what are we going to do about Kennedy? What are we going to do about the president? It's terrible. And this amazing figure, who really should have been could, would, could, very good in a movie, he was a Russian Jesuit, which means that although he was a Catholic, he was dressed as a Russian Orthodox priest. There is a Uniate church in Eastern Europe, which is Orthodox in right, but Catholic in uh, in jurisdiction and dogma. It's, it, it's a part of the Roman Church. And he said in a weird way, don't worry, the old man will take care of it. And I have no idea what he meant. I told the story to David Talbot, and he incorporated in his book about Alan Doe's because he said, rightly, that um, Alan Dulles was known as the old man in the CIA. The trouble with that story is that J. Edgar Hoover was known as the old man in the FBI, and I'm sure there are a lot of other old men, too. So I don't know who was involved, but, uh, who was implicated by this Jesuit. But uh, I did hear it, and, I, you know, you asked me at the beginning what got me interested I think I suppressed that memory. I'm not sure, because obviously that should have been the first reason to be suspicious of the Kennedy assassination. But I didn't give it to you earlier, not because uh, I was consciously saying I don't want to share it. It just didn't occur to me. And I think it didn't occur to me. Then, until after, I had found other reasons that didn't involve me personally that got me interested in the Kennedy assassination.
0: Right, I remember that anecdote from uh, The Devil's devil's Chessboard, and I'm I'm glad you brought up Seven Days in May, because that was actually the second film I was going to mention, that Kennedy read the book, and he actually wanted to have it made, and I believe it was Pierre Salinger who tried to uh, set about getting that you know, doing the legwork for getting that turned into a motion picture. And in that film, as I, I saw it a couple of years ago, and I, 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 I've i been meaning to go rewatch this to confirm it, but two things that I recall now, which I hope my memory is accurate here. They mention the phrase continuity of government in regards what? to in, really? in regards to these communities, I'm going to go okay, back and watch audience. it again and get
2: comfortable well, let's appeal to the audience here. Please, somebody go and watch that movie. And if they say continuity of government, please contact me. I, I have to be suspicious because, uh, you know, this was a very tightly held thing, continuity of government. Not many people knew about it. But that would be, I would say, a major, major fact to establish, is it mentioned in that film?
0: So I, I am, I would, I would say I'd, I'm saying, I'm saying, I'm 70% sure I remember it correctly, but I'm not 100% sure. I also recall that they say something about Raven Rock.
2: Well, that's you, a little more likely, yeah. And, and so, the let's explain Raven Rock. Let's explain to people the heart of the Doomsday Project, which is to set up an alternative government. If by horrible uh, developments, America is decapitated by a nuclear attack, you have to have a way of keeping going. This is the idea of continuity of government. You've lost all your top people. So what do you do? You have a government in waiting. This is very relevant to 9-11 because COG was implemented on 9-11. And by the way, it was implemented on January the 6th, as I have said in a recent article.
0: I'm joined by my collaborator, Ben Howard. Who is also an expert in the work of Peter Dale Scotts? He's one of Peter Dale Scott's acolytes, as I guess you could say I am. And we're going to be talking about JFK and what Peter had to say about it. So, Ben, what did you think of this discussion with Peter and the, the points that he brought up about the Kennedy assassination and its larger context?
3: I thought that that the conversation about Jack Ruby and his role as the interconnect between uh, what we think of as the mafia but but you could more completely call it you know the the underworld uh as a as a counterpoint to the to the straight business worlds overworld um and that uh, the idea that um uh, ruby was not simply a mobster or or a nightclub owner um, but really the the nexus point for uh both the the organized crime side of things um and then also the business side of things, and then also the police. And the, the way that he represented the nexus of those things, I think, is so crucial. Um, you mentioned uh, in that segment we just listened to the uh, idea that, that Robert Kennedy's book, The Enemy Within, was sort of one of the first public administration attempts to deal with the question of the mafia and its role. And it is so interesting that at that time that that book was written, um, you know the the public's understand. I mean, the word mafia, which obviously today is is you know everybody knows what the mafia is. It's been depicted, you know from from you know from here and back in in uh, popular culture. But at the time, I mean, even uh, Hoover was denying that there that there was any organized crime element. Um, and that book was was an attempt to. Deal with not just not just the idea of there are people who are organized and do organized crime, but that there's an interconnection between uh that book in particular was talking about the local you know sort of the corruption of local local police um but obviously we know now that it goes much much higher than that, and you know uh, i've been I've been reading a little bit of Pete Bruton's book uh about people like Walter misher and the connections that they have all the way up to you know George h. w. Bush and things like this so we know now that the connection between, you know, what we think of as mafia and, uh, and government is, is in fact, it happens at the higher, highest levels. Um, and so Ruby, you know, represents that nexus, uh, at that point in time in the early sixties, and obviously it continued to develop, but I think that's so crucial. And then the, the other factor of course, is, uh, that, that, uh, much to the consternation of the Italian-American community in this country, which did form Italian-American uh, civil rights organizations to fight this perception. The, the Mafia is not simply a, uh, an Italian organization. There are lots of other ethnic groups involved. And, uh, you know, perhaps in the background all the time were the the, uh, the white shoe wasps uh, pulling the strings in many respects. Um, so I think that that idea, because, because, of course, Ruby was not involved with uh, well, he he was to some extent, but the the his his involvement with the Italian side of the mafia was really overemphasized in a lot of the official reports about it. Um, but for instance, his connections with the Jewish mafia, as as Peter Del Scott just mentioned in that segment that we just listened to, um, I think are really crucial to talk about. So uh, Ruby's role as not just a mobster, but in fact as a connection point between uh, not just the local cops who are meant to be regulating the mafia's activities who are meant to be ensuring that they don't corrupt uh the nightclubs and the and the you know parlors and the bars etc but in fact who are taking payoffs um he's not just doing that but he's also serving as a connection point to many business people uh i think i think professor scott wrote about this in in deep politics and the death of jfk oswald's connections for instance in some of the horse racing tracks where he would make sure that high profile uh millionaire and billionaire uh, horse racing betters wouldn't get uh
0: Wouldn't get Ruby, Ruby, you mean?
3: You you said Oswald, but you mean sorry. I meant Ruby. Yes, yes, yes. That Ruby. That Ruby served that role. Um, So, so obviously, the the fact that uh, obviously, in particular, the Warren Commission didn't touch on this really at all. uh, The important aspects of it is a is a pretty glaring omission in their in their analysis of his uh, his relation to, you know, he was not simply as he claimed a concerned citizen who wanted to spare Jackie Kennedy the pain of coming out to Texas for a murder trial. Obviously, there were interests far, far beyond that.
0: Yeah, concerned local pimp, right? Right, a pimp with a heart of gold. I mean, it's 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 hysterical. And you know, the mafia. I mean, I guess hands off or hats off to organized crime. They were kind of trailblazers in, in diversity and inclusion, right? I mean, that's not just Italians. So let's not let's not stereotype them that way and with ruby his his statements you know nobody does more on ruby than um peter dale scott and his the way his statements to warren were were played off by warren he's disinterested and then the way that the warren commission just refused to like interrogate his connections was that was um you know this this glaring omission in the way that they that they handled it the other thing i wanted to or one thing i wanted to clarify now Peter sort of I don't I won't say he dodges a question because he's the he's my source for this but I tried to ask him about the wire service because he goes on about this in deep politics and the death of JFK and it's it's fascinating and it's <clears throat> something I I wasn't I wouldn't have thought of before reading his his work but the takeo, the the wire service wars You know this, the organized crime syndicate that ended up taking over the wire service. That ends up being a very important part of the the national organized crime, you know, syndicate, because the wire service was a way was like a way to get a foot in the door for organized crime that led to you know corruption on a bigger and bigger scale. Because you first corrupt people, some cops and other officials about the wire service, and it seems. Somewhat harmless. You know, it's just just a little bit of gambling. Everybody's going to gamble anyway. But once you're once you start corrupting these people and bribing them, then it opens the door to a whole lot of other things because you've got them basically. They're already part of <coughs> your criminal enterprises, and so you can go from there. And that that was the significance of the wire service. But Peter and his. You, fixation, you know, to our benefit, I think, in recent years with continuity of government. He wanted to talk about parallels between the National Wire Service and then this other network of communications, which is for emergency use by the military and intelligence, you know, apparatus in the United States, continuity of government. So he went off in that direction, which I think was all good and fascinating. But the reason that he that I asked him that was because that was a part of his book. And it dovetails with the enemy within aspect that. The, team, the corruption of the Teamsters and the, the battle over the wire service, all of these things are a national network. When you think about the Teamsters, I mean, what's the significance? What comes to, you, what comes to your mind when, I, when, I, when you think about why the, the Teamsters are significant if they're corrupted? Like, why does that matter if the Teamsters themselves are a corrupt entity? I mean,
3: the, the corruption of organized crime... Uh, of the of the unions, rather, by organized crime, I think is one of the most important developments uh, because the and it 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 dovetails so nicely, or or unfortunately, I guess you could say, with the CIA's corruption of the unions, which occurred at roughly the same period, but on the on the international scene. Um, but obviously, I would say that the two were were part of a two pronged strategy in some respects. Um, Because obviously, you know, the unions represent a pretty significant uh, power, you know, source of power, uh, working class power, uh, you know, to the to the extent that the unions were working class, you know, I mean, there are you know, we can have a whole conversation about unions in this country and uh, the various issues with them. But nonetheless, they were a source of working class power that existed outside of uh, all of the ruling class institutions and organs. And so you needed a way to get get into those organizations. and. You know, the, the most immediate cause that that um the two of you talked about was the the uh pension funds which were used and and sort of Hoffa became uh uh sort of the the holder of the purse strings for the mafia's uh Vegas uh casino investments, uh which some of which probably did pay off to the union to some extent, but um certainly lots of money was also lost um and clearly almost all of it was was at the very least corrupt if not outright illegal but that getting that in to the unions in that way um it 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 led to a situation where they became completely defanged um and and controlled in the most important ways uh by those ruling class organs i mean the 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 FBI uh, likes to pretend that they are you know so opposed to uh, organized crime infiltrating the unions and of course it became under Reagan sort of a um a reason for going after the unions that they were corrupted by organized crime but of course it was i think pretty clearly a a, a plot from the beginning to sort of hollow out those working class institutions from the beginning and like i said i mean you know what on the one hand you have organized crime infiltrating these these working class organizations within the US externally you have people like Irving Brown who are you know going into uh marseille and, and breaking up the french uh, dock workers union to with using using the Corsican mafia, so here's the mafia connection again, but using the Corsican mafia to turn Marseille into uh the French connection for the heroin traffic uh the same thing was done um, by union official, American union officials in Chile uh, against uh, allende's government forming middle class unions that that formed a block for for pinochet so uh this this uh infiltration and subversion of these working class organizations I think is a is a crucial part of this story. And obviously Ruby, as a, as a you know, to go back to Ruby, I mean he was there uh at some of the beginning of this. I mean his his taking over the junk handler syndicate, um, you know, his involvement in that wire service, which I think is I, you know, that wire service in particular, because of how the mafia uh operates as sort of a franchise organization where they have a monopoly over a given area. And that monopoly is not just recognized by other members of the organized crime community. It's, it's recognized by the, the federal government in many respects. I mean, the, the FBI uh, understands that this group of people has a monopoly over certain things in this area. And to a certain extent, it's often tolerated um, because it's easier to manage uh, a, a single hierarchical institution uh, than it is in their minds to manage kind of this anarchy or chaos. So they use that as a justification for why they tolerate it. And like you were saying, this um, once you once you've given in a little bit, you know the, the wire service, right? They're sending out the the scores for the various games, or who won the horse, you know, who won the horse race in in the other on the other side of the country, you know, at a time when you couldn't just get that information, right? The, the wire service has served not just the, the gamblers but also the, the newspapers, right? I mean, if you wanted to pick up your morning newspaper and find out, you know, who who won a horse race on the other side of the country, so it did have a legit purpose. But, of course, for the, for the organized crime, you know, that's, that's their, their lifeblood is, is the racket and, and making money off of illegal gambling. And, yeah, the vice squad can just ignore it and take a little bit of money. And, you know, they don't have to deal with um, – they, they can deal with somebody they know is not going to uh, drop bodies too often. Somebody that, that they're going to get informants in there like Ruby served for the, for the Dallas vice squad, right? Um, they're going to know what's going on. They're going to know in advance what's happening. Uh, so this, this, um, you know, it's, it's, you, you have it coming from both ends. You have the money going into the police departments and you have the informants giving information to the police departments on the other side. And it represents not just a, um, you know, when you, when you hear informant, you think of a one-way transfer of information, but really they're, they're kind of a cutout in a way. And I think that's kind of the role that Ruby served. So, you know, when, when you think about the, um, uh, going back to the, going back to sort of the, the, um, the the way that the unions were infiltrated, it's this, it's the same way. It's it's um, you know the the unions are giving money uh, to to the to the mafia, and the mafia is providing personnel and leadership roles, and it becomes a, a kind of a cutout role for them uh, that allows for their infiltration. So it's a it's a pretty pernicious phenomena, and I think it still has consequences to this day. I mean, most of the most of the mafia influence in the unions is gone t- uh, today, but I think at such a crucial point in time. To have those institutions defanged the way that they were, I think, was was pretty devastating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And to that, I would add that it's kind of funny that the wire service model of like essentially rent seeking, like taking advantage of this position and then being able to extract some money through gambling, because you know who won the race? The race. Well, that that exists today in a different form by the real gangsters, which is you know the big banks on Wall Street and their high frequency trading. It's it's basically the exact same thing and uh it's the reason why they want to have a financial transactions tax because they're doing this to make money you know by doing nothing productive and it's just like they're making millions and millions of dollars like every day doing this and we can't do anything to stop them because now the mafia is really running the country <laughs> it seems or people that are even that are much you know better at being the mafia than the mafia and the other thing that I wanted to that I that I would wanted to get at about that, which is like maybe too obvious to even that it's, it that it didn't that you didn't think about saying it, but is that the Teamsters are driving around everything, so that's yeah. the way to move drugs all over the country. If there's a corrupt yep. union and like you've got that the official Teamsters guys and they're going to they're driving around every single part of the country, it's just like with Operation Underworld where they hand the the, the docks over to the mob. And gee, what's going to happen if the mob is 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 with state approval controlling the docks? You I know, mean, I wonder what else they can unload and 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 offload, offload and uh, and load onto boats and shipping containers and all this. You know, I mean, it's it's uh, of course you want to corrupt those unions. On top of the, the fact that it gave them this huge uh, financial wherewithal so that they could mess with. Uh, as well to fund different operations. And like Vegas, you know, those Vegas casinos were set up that way as a way to sort of reestablish gambling after Cuba had been cut down or, or taken over.
3: And I mean, certainly those business interests that wanted to avoid strikes and labor action and that sort of thing. I mean, they were very happy to see, I mean, literally the, the way that the mafia would do it just is just come in and beat them up. Right. I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's a very rough and tumble thing, but I mean, if you've got those enforcers
0: and you don't have to deal with a strike, I mean, that's just another reason why you why you would want this organized crime element in there. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it goes back in U.S. history. You have these quasi or, or proto-FBI, CIA, whatever units like the Pinkertons, right? Okay, yeah. you can break a strike with them. That's that's more of like a high-end way to do it, or you could just hire the mob to do it. But either way, these workers organizing for a better life are, are going to get their skulls cracked. Um, because that's that seems to be the way that they want to do it. Um, so this was the the Peter's Peter's work, Deep Politics and the Death of JFK. If people want to know more about the the mob angle, it's really amazing. It's a challenging read. You got to read it sort of slowly. It's a it's challenging for anybody, but there's so much you know dynamite material in that. Now there was one Peter said. That there was there was one thing that I didn't want to get into a big argument with him about, but he said that the U.S. Has, was the best system in the world, and I, I sort of gently, you know, uh, offered a slightly different perspective. But um, I, I would have said more, except I just I didn't want to derail the conversation with that, so I just kind of I, I just we just sort of continued. But when I think of that, I mean, if you think about the mob, you know, you think of like, okay, yeah, it's the it's the best system that there is. There's nothing better. We made sure of that. OK, like because every other country that's tried to set up another system, the U.S. has tried to move them to the right. You know, Italy wanted to compromise with the left and move the country to the left. You know, you have assassinations, and terror bombings and everything else. All the governments we were going mm-hmm. to try to nationalize their resources and so on. Um, you know, everything the U.S. did to undermine the Soviet Union from its very you know first days. You know, Woodrow Wilson invaded the Soviet Union. I mean, there's that aspect of it. So it's like. I'm reminded of Dean Acheson. I think I said this in one of the JFK 101 episodes, but it it bears repeating. So this this isn't the first and it won't be the last time that I say this. But Dean Acheson was talking about Winston Churchill because Churchill famously said, well, you know, the only good thing about democracy is that there isn't anything better. Okay. But then Acheson points out that, but you know, uh, Churchill also used to say, that's why tyranny, tempered with Assassination and lots of assassination. Okay, and Atchison sort of approvingly quotes that. And you know, I think that's the system that we, from the elites' perspective, that is what we have. Yeah, democracy because there isn't really anything better. But if need be, assassination as a veto power, which seems to be something of what we experienced with with Dallas, and then a few years later with RFK.
3: Yeah, I mean, you if you think about the nature of liberal democracy, I mean, the bourgeois need you know the bourgeoisie needs a system of of uh, of law to to just literally administer the, the system of capitalism you need to have property rights you need to have courts that are, can arbitrate you know arguments you need a system of democracy either parliamentary or what have you that can adjudicate disputes between different you know segments of the bourgeoisie but obviously you know as as liberal democracy evolved from its origins in you know arguably either 1776 or 1789 you know you had growing working class power uh you you need that veto against that uh against that power that that wants to use this system of uh of bourgeois rights and and bourgeois democracy to uh to to try to temper the excesses of capitalism such as it's possible under under those systems of laws so you know i think it's pretty natural that that um because uh there are a lot of reasons why you know you, you for rich elites they don't want a direct system of uh dictatorship essentially openly uh there are a lot of downsides to that so i think it's i think it's understandable that that you would have what what it is that we have which is on the surface a system of uh liberal democracy and and um you know representative democracy property rights all of those you know court systems all of those institutions and then under the surface there is like you called it this veto power of you know, if if uh, if a, a young black organizer in Chicago gets to be too much of a problem, you can you could assassinate him. And then, you know, however many decades put your put your own person in there to uh, pick up the pieces at a later date. Uh, so there's a there's a real. Um, yeah, there's sort of the, the what's 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 written in the public administration textbooks, what's taught in political science and then what's under the surface that that is often not acknowledged, but I think is. Is as I mean, it is as it is as institutionalized. I think I mean in institutions like the CIA um, and and others that are more even more covert than the CIA, uh, as as voting is or
0: as property rights are or as the courts are. Yeah, it's a way. Uh, it, it, it's you have covert operations which are plausibly deniable and so on, but you have this milieu of, of different groups that can be that can act that way to to bring about what you want. And then it'll be debated for years and years. I mean, the Malcolm X case is another example. It's the whole milieu of the Nation of Islam and the local police, uh, you know, and Malcolm X's own group and the informants within that. And, and people, even people who think, OK, the state had to have been involved in the Malcolm X case would still disagree over that. So it's like there's still or even the Kennedy assassination, too. There's always disagreements among even people who are on the critical community would be arguing about the details of it because. It's, you know, it's intentionally like a house of mirrors once you're, you've got the power to to make political events happen like that. And Dallas itself was a place that was full of um, uh, people who wanted to get rid of Kennedy and that stood to gain a lot from him from that. And that's why it seemed sort of like a Bircher type thing in the beginning. Um, How did, how do you, how do you, how do those people figure and those elements figure in your analysis of what what happened to JFK
3: yeah I thought Professor Scott's uh you know kind of long long uh section we're in we just listened to about talking about Jack Crichton and um I think that he's such an important figure because on the one hand he's a he's an oil man uh you know he's a representative of um you know what was big big money in Texas at that point in time uh, and yet, he also had this uh, more subtle, covert role as as the organizer of a of a Army Reserve Intelligence Detachment, the four hundred twenty eighth, uh, four hundred eighty eighth uh, Intelligence Detachment, which seems to have played a, a very significant role in the assassination. And obviously, that organization, I think we might have talked about it in one of the uh, maybe the the JFK one hundred one series that we did. Um, a lot of them overlapped with the Dallas Police Department as well. So that um, I've always because um, Professor Scott has sort of called it the phase two, the phase one and phase two cover ups. And he in the section we just listened to, he talked about it where, you know, for the first 12 or so hours, um, there were lots of local paper stories coming out from local sources. I assume, you know, police, intelligence, other people who were on the scene who were of the Bircherite right wing persuasion who were saying that. And this was certainly bolstered by um you know the alleged fact that Oswald had been had visited the Soviet and Cuban embassies in Mexico City, et cetera. so there's certainly I think a lot more to this than just people who were in Dallas. but uh, there was that group of people who were trying to push the idea that this was the Soviet Union assassinating the President of the United States, and um that idea uh you know as as professor Scott survived for for maybe twelve or so hours, but I've always wondered to to what extent. Were there true believers uh, who, who actually thought that that was true? To what extent were there, I don't think there were many of those, but to what extent were there people who actually wanted the public to believe that this was true to potentially trigger some kind of conflict? I mean, you know, real diehard right-wing insane people who we know were at the highest levels. I mean, Curtis LeMay and other people like that who who actually wanted, sought, you know, nuclear confrontation with the Soviet Union. Um, and then to and to what extent were there people who uh, were using this threat uh, as a as a cudgel with which to pressure people like Warren uh, to sort of accede to this uh, very closed off investigation of what happened? Um, so those 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 sort of right wing figures in Dallas, uh, like Crichton, but but there were many many others uh, are very interesting to me, and, and I think looking at, I think in particular, I mean to look at. You know who who was it? Where was it? The where did the idea? Because there were other places that people wanted to. Uh, you know, I think we talked about the the plot in uh, Chicago, maybe on one of the JFK 101 series. But there were other potential plots. So who was it? Who was in Dallas on the ground planning this in the first place? And and uh, to you know to, that other people decided to link up with that plot. Um, and I think you know looking at the 488th Intelligence Detachment, I think that's a that's a very fertile ground to to look to for for who might have been uh sort of the incipiators of of this particular plot to kill the president
0: yeah and he was also involved in that civil civil defense aspect of it which may have been you know intertwined with that that unit but totally. that was that is that's where it gets into cog business because it, it, peter has pointed this out that it's been on the website of the white house communications network which is essentially you know the direct descendant of or the 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 modern version the contemporary version of the cog networks they had they posted a weird thing saying like we have been helping to you know uh, uh, preserve american communications for all this time and we were one of the top people um documenting the events on the of the kennedy assassination right and it's like, wait those documents have those have never been those records have never been released and right you know so I I wonder if that if some if one of those channels had something to do with that like dictabelt recording you know that there's kind of weird irregularities but it seems mm. to have been part of the it does seem to have come from the motorcade but it's like there the origins of it don't don't make sense I've, I've wondered about that that's kind of an aside but I actually have something that come came up just recently and it might not have ever been talked about and it relates to some of these figures in Dallas so. People who have heard my appearances on Truanon, um, and, and maybe in JFK 101, we would have talked about this too, but this academic named Ola Tanander, who really wrote one of the earliest pieces of the, on the deep state, in, uh, among you know, the, not just talking about Turkey, right? He wrote one of the first essays on this, and he was the person who inspired Peter or, or led Peter to look at these things more deeply himself. And I'm friendly with Ola, and I, some of his things he sent me are, are over email. Uh, are really mind blowing, and I I add some passages on them in my book. But and I I wanted to send this to him recently. Uh, what I wrote, I said, because I wanted him to be cool with what I me quoting him so much from an email in a, in a book that's that's going to be published soon. So I emailed him, and then he sent me back something that was very timely. It was um so this is the first time that I've really talked about this anywhere. Uh, and he wrote in this email one other thing that might be of interest to you. A friend found the attached document a few years ago in the Skorzeny file at the BND archive. Okay, Skorzeny was a ex-Nazi who was used for all sorts of covert ops and other really you know, dirty business uh, by the CIA and other uh, intelligence agencies during the Cold War. Okay, and the BND is uh, German intelligence, right? Um, so the document from September 1962 clearly indicates that a senior U.S. Air Force officer had contact with Skorzeny and claims that Kennedy was a catastrophic problem, not recognizing Western superiority and showing weakness toward the East. And you don't go to Skorzeny to have a nice talk. You go to him if you want to have someone eliminated, which I guess fits with David Talbot's comments on de Gaulle and the OAS. And Skorzeny supposedly collaborated with them. In the U.S., you always want to have plausible deniability. Best wishes, Ola. And he, he gave me the document, which is in German. Uh, so I can't read it and I, I want to get it translated eventually, but uh, he sent me a scan of this document. Now, a book just came out that deals with Scorzini, and it's Hank Alberelli Jr.'s posthumous book, Who in Dallas, and it deals with Scorzini uh extensively. And so I his his co-author or his sort of ghostwriter for helping him complete this is a woman named Leslie Sharp. And I emailed her about this stuff, and she emailed me back and said um, that she thinks the cur- the the person might be Herschel Williams the colonel that um got, tried to get in touch with uh the officer that wanted to get in touch with Scorzini i don't know if this is accurate or not this is her speculation uh he was also Scorzini's wife's uh Ilse's colleague at a real estate firm previews incorporated which opened an office in Dallas in the spring of 1963 uh and that she was the arms and legs for Otto's strategy in Dallas. So that, that basically Alberelli has just put out this book from beyond the grave and it 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 tries to make the case that Scorzeni may have been the person who was carrying this out uh in terms operationally. I can't say much more than that because I haven't read the book, but I know and I just got it in the mail the other day, she just sent it to me coincidentally. So these things are kind of coming together really interestingly. But I know from uh, tidbits about the book that one of the things that it, the cases that it makes, Dallas was the perfect place for this because there were so many people who stood to make lots and lots of money, like these oil people who had invested in military firms and so on. But they needed a war. And so they were all, there was all this and they were connected to the military and there was all this pressure for war. And, they, and it, didn't, it didn't necessarily matter where it was. if If you're familiar with the history, Kennedy was pressured very hard to go into Laos right away. So like there could have, if Kennedy had bowed to that, that what we think of as the Vietnam War could have been started, kicked off in Laos in 1961, if Kennedy had listened to his maniacal generals um, because they, they wanted the, you know, all of this weapons production. So it's why you have really sick things like during the Vietnam War, when Johnson would declare a bombing halt, you know, on Vietnam. And then all of a sudden, The bombing of Laos would like ramp up 500% because they just had to, you know, drop the bombs because the bomb is like a, you can just imagine a cash register sounding off every time one of those bombs explodes over, you know, on top of some peasant's hut uh, in the the Laotian jungle. Right. So these, these forces were, you know, a a part of this of the story and Dallas was the worst place for it to be. Of course, the guy that owned the Texas School Book Depository, uh, Dry Hole Bird, uh, met, was an insider trader. Basically, he bought a, like a two, $200,000 worth of stock that turned into two, $20 million or something like that, or 500000 something like that, like a ridiculous purchase that was before he got one of the first Vietnam War contracts, and he was the guy that owned the Texas School Book Depository, which is you know quite a coincidence.
3: Yeah. I mean, that confluence in Dallas of military, oil, right-wing, Bircher, you know, ideology. I mean, it really was like a perfect storm for that. And it's, I mean, ultimately when you think of all the different, you know, there's several other plots that they tried, at least a couple other, it's kind of unsurprising that the one that ended up succeeding and all the, all the parts and pieces came together properly was in Dallas. But the Scorzani connection is, is mind blowing just because of, I mean who he is, and all of the tie ins that he had to this post war uh you know Nazi network that existed across Europe, I mean you know Dave has obviously been on that beat for for many decades at this point, so the idea that and i mean when you you know when you introduce Scorzani and you kind of put this in the context of sort of the actions that were taken against de Gaulle for pulling out of Algeria, which obviously was also something that Kennedy was very aware of, and I mean you know. That was one of his big speeches that he gave when he was a young senator. Uh, it, it really kind of comes full circle, and it's it's you know when you situate this assassination in the context of us, uh, I mean, you really can think of it as a global war on uh, the the foreign working and, and peasant class. I mean, it's it's not hard to theorize it that way, and and introducing somebody like Scorzani as a connection point. Uh, to especially to connect it with what was going on with de Gaulle, who again, you know, I don't think that Kennedy was, you know, some kind of communist, certainly de Gaulle was not, but they were realists who understood, you know, if we keep trying to do this, it's going to have disastrous consequences, which of course it has had disastrous consequences in the, in the decades since. And, uh, you know, even that, even that amount of pushback uh, was, was enough to sign their death warrants or attempted death warrants, uh in in those cases so it's it's uh the, that Skorzeny connect connection is unbelievable
0: yeah I, i'm i'm curious to learn more about that because they uh Avarelli had apparently had some really dynamite documentary evidence that um initially was going to be a part of a collaboration with Ralph Gannis uh a retired army major or something like that but it turned out that Gannis was a real right winger and he mm-hmm. basically admired scorzeni and thought that like, okay, yes, yeah, it seems like scorzeni was involved in killing Kennedy, but Kennedy was, you know, sleeping with a communist, um, you know, spy or something to that effect. And so it was probably the right thing to do. And then, so I guess Alberelli was like, okay, you, you've got some good material, but I can't, <laughs> I can't go here with you. Um, so this new book should have some interesting material on that. I'm curious to learn more about that. And I'm like, ha- I'm, cited and it's so odd that Ola just sent that to me when I contacted him. But when the book comes out, you'll read the, the the sections that have some of the things that he sent to me in an email and they're just I wouldn't put so much of somebody else's writing in a in a as just as a series of block quotes and then comment on them except they're so fascinating. I thought I can't I can't not put this in there. This deserves to see the light of day and not just be in my inbox from like two years ago. So I, I put it in there. Um so the last thing I want to say, if you have the do you, have, do you have the time for me to take you on a on a trip far far in the past. Okay. So we talked about Peter said this in passing and I've always wanted to tell this story even though the listeners this is going to be pretty far afield from Dallas 1963 but he we were speaking about um Chinese culture and the differences, you know, fundamental differences in the civilization in, in China and I mentioned that there's a deep-seated um suspicion and, and and bordering on contempt when it comes to merchants historically in China that goes back thousands of years and in particular what i was thinking of because this this comes from teaching east asian history as a year long high school course which which covered japan and china basically so it was not all of east asia but you know two two countries with long histories and if you've ever seen the movie uh the emperor and the and the assassin which i think it might be a Zhang Mo movie, one, one of his um, earlier, movie, not super early movies, but it's like from maybe the early 2000s. And it's about the first emperor of China, uh, Qin Shi Huang, otherwise known as Ying Zheng, I believe. And uh, this merchant named Lu Bu Wei is a, is a part of the story. And the story goes like this: this. This gets into conspiracy and history both, and also might it will shed some insight into offer some insight into why the Chinese are not pro merchant in a in a way that's maybe fundamental. Whereas in America, okay, America is pro merchant. Okay, our best, you know, our our we have memorials to the best merchants, the best people at buying and selling stuff, like the Rockefeller Center or Carnegie Mellon University or Carnegie Hall or Vanderbilt University. Right, the people that are just the, we build monuments to the people who are the best at exploiting people in America. So strange thing to do. But in China, they are suspicious of of merchants. And maybe it goes, it could go there could be other aspects of this. And I know that there are things in Confucian, you know, uh, in the writings of Confucius, where he speaks about, you know, the sort of the the, uh, the not so virtuous nature of merchants and people who are trying to make profits all the time. But Lu Bu Wei was the richest man in China and he made a whole lot of money during the Warring States period. And he was friendly with a, the a person from um, the kingdom that actually wins, uh, which is eventually, which was Qin Shi Huang's kingdom, Qin. That's what it was. It was the Qin country, uh, romanized as Qin, right? Qin. And so, they, and they were one of the warring states. So, the father of the first emperor of China is doing some business with Lü Bu Wei. and Lü Wei has this really, 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 really beautiful concubine, okay, who Lu, who Lu Bu Wei has been sleeping with and is pregnant with Lu Bu Wei's child. But the the leader of Qin wants this concubine. And so, you know, what he wants, he gets. So Lu Bu Wei gives him this beautiful concubine. And they he becomes like the first consort of uh, the Qin king, but she's pregnant. And so she has this baby. And it's like uh, a little bit early, a little bit early for this baby to come about. But, you know, these things happen and baby's healthy. Don't want don't to complain too much about that. So this baby is born. It's Qin Shi Qi Huang or, or Ying Zheng, and he becomes the first emperor of China later. Now, the the problem is for Lu Bu Wei is that this woman is very, that this beautiful concubine who is, who had his son, who's going to be the first emperor of China eventually. but the it, it, this is a this is a problem, so the father eventually dies, but chininshi hu and Qin Shi Huang is the emperor. The problem is the queen mother, this beautiful woman, is a very lustful woman, and- she, uh so Lu Bu Wei the merchant guy, is afraid that this is going to cause him some problems, and so he has to come up with a scheme that he can somehow redirect her lust away from him because if it becomes known that he is actually the father of the future emperor of China, who's just the king of Qin right now. Well, if that happens, it's over for him. He's going to be subjected to all sorts of punishments because the Qin were famous for their punishments. They actually invented the five punishments, the Qin dynasty, the Qin uh, country did, which was like you get tattooed first all over your body, and then they cut off your feet, and they cut off your nose, and, and, they, and they castrate you. And then I think the fifth one is they just uh, cut, you, cut you in half or something, right? There's five punishments, and they all are pretty terrible. So he didn't want any part of that. He didn't want to get punished. He's got to find a way to derail or or redirect the lustful woman to protect himself. So he puts out a call, find me, the man in the Chinese countryside who has the biggest penis in all of China. And uh, eventually they find this guy named Lao Ai, and he's just like a a yokel from who knows where who happens to have a giant penis. So they get him put into the court you know, at the palace, and he would perform in a way to attract the attention of the Queen Mother, which in this case meant he would uh take a wagon wheel and put it on his on his penis, on his giant penis, and dance around like this. And that's a way to get you can get people's attention and it worked. And so they they started this affair. He started having sex with the Queen Mother. And it was all going fine for as far as Lu Bu Wei was concerned, until this guy Lao Ai, who really has no talents, what to speak, of, to speak of, but he's eventually made into a marquee, and he thinks that he's really gr- clever, and he's going to try to stage a coup against uh, Qin Shi Qi Huang or, or Ying Zheng, right? The first emperor of China, the guy that has the terracotta army, the guy that built the first Great Wall of China, right? The guy, I mean, China in America is comes from that word Qin, Qin, the Qin dynasty, like the first, he's the first emperor of China. So he, he gets wind of this. And uh, finally figures out what happens, and he has Lao Ai, Mr. Mr. Big Penis, killed, and, uh, and, and Lu Bu Wei. I believe Lu Bu Wei is also killed, but he serves as a cautionary tale about not being so greedy and scheming, you know, and, and not to have the, the mentality of a, of a merchant who really cares only about expediency and, and acquiring wealth and, and so on. And so in this way, he's a cautionary tale. Now this story is a little it's hard to believe because it comes really from the Han Dynasty historian, the Grand Historian of China, uh, Sima uh, Sima Qian. Probably not pronouncing it. I'm certain I'm not pronouncing it right because my tones. are... I lived in Taiwan for a year, my tone, in Shanghai for a summer, but my tones in China and Chinese suck. So I call him uh, Sima Qian or Sima Qian, and he was the Grand Historian of China, and he was the guy himself who was going to be castrated or no, he was going to be executed because he contradicted the emperor of the Han dynasty. And he said, you know, this guy that you're really upset with, I don't think he's a bad guy. He must have a good reason for doing what he's doing. So the emperor's like, how dare you? How dare you contradict me? I'm going to have you castrated as the punishment. And if you're a Confucian, you don't want to be cast. I mean, nobody really wants to be castrated, but if you're a Confucian, you really don't want to be because it's like the body to maintain the integrity of the body is like so important. It, it was expected that Sima Qian would kill himself rather than allow himself to be castrated, but he had made a promise to his father that I would see this project to its end, my Grand History of China, and so with, he was torn between the Confucian ideal of filial piety and the Confucian ideal of not having, you know, not getting castrated, which is pretty universal, not just not a peculiarity of Chinese culture. So he uh, submits to this so he can complete his history project, which he does. Now, the question is, could this possibly be true, the story of Lao Ai, Or is this more of like the regime that takes over has to delegitimize the previous one? And so they come up with the most, you know, uh, body uh, and morally dissolute, you know, characterization of the previous regime. I don't know, but it's out there. It's a part of Chinese culture. They don't like merchants. Maybe there's some hope in Chinese with Chinese civilization because in our culture, merchants rule and we seem to be run by um, you know, we seem to, the country, people in America who are gangsters with the mentality of capitalists and capitalists with the mentality of gangsters seem to be in charge of things and uh, you know, maybe, maybe there is a better system than this and maybe the Chinese can help to bring this about. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's just something for people to to think about in a way to sort of take this out of the realm of Dallas, uh, and offer some weird historical anecdotes <laughs> that you won't really find on other podcasts, and so I hope people appreciate that. Um, and then don't go and be like Lubuway and come up with schemes like that because it will come to a bad end. Yeah, never, never scheme, never
3: ends up. never never ends up. You know, the C- history of the CIA is full of that. Does does not end up
0: well for the schemers in many, many cases. History will eventually out, I think. Yeah. That's what, that's what I'm hoping will happen anyway. All right, Ben, I think hopefully next week we're going to be able to do something similar for the second part of Peter's um, uh, Peter's segments with us and with this series. So with that, um, I thank you very much for uh, being here and it's always great to work with you. So I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, again for having me. I want to thank Anthony Fest and Dana Chavaria for engineering this episode. Casey Moore for his always excellent artwork, and Mock Orange for providing our music. That's it for today, friends. Let us all work together to end the state of exception.